on this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, killing the vampire squids in federal government software and a potential new fate worse than F for federal employees. It's Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose. I'm at GeoInt in St. Louis, the big conference here for the intelligence community. Thursday's FedGov Today podcast and the next episode of the FedGov Today TV show will feature great leaders from government and industry that I'm talking to here. If you miss the TV show or the podcast, you can always find them on demand at FedGovToday.com. Congress could find budget savings in federal agency software, according to a veteran of the Hill. He calls those contracts software vampire squids. Matt Cornelius is former senior professional staff member for the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and former senior technology and cybersecurity advisor at the Office of Management and Budget. He's writing about software licensing in FCW. Matt, it's great to talk to you again. Why are you picking on federal software licensing, of all things, uh, to write about? Thanks very much for joining me. Well, thanks, Francis. It's great to be here. Um, the, the, the software licensing space has been something that's been very uh, particular to me, not just you know when I served in Congress for a couple of years as a, as a professional staff member for uh, Senator Gary Peters, but also during my time at OMB and the General Services Administration. Um, you know, the, the story I tell is when I was at OMB, about every two or three months, there would be some budget examiner for, you know, agency X or component Y who would come down from the 10th floor because the budget folks had the nice space to the seventh floor where I resided. And they would start screaming at the top of their lungs. Why, why is my agency having to pay $70 million to company X and Y for all these licenses they didn't know that they had? And so I'd have to sit down with that person. I have to explain to them how the sales process worked for a lot of these big incumbent software contractors or software vendors and how they go about making money in public sector and how they go about doing audits and how they come back and you know find all of the all of this usage and all of these licenses that agencies didn't know that they had and keeping them on the hook for all this bad tech that CIOs and procurement executives weren't aware of. And, you know, because of those problems, you know, we tried to solve uh, solve some of those challenges when I was in the executive branch. But being in Congress, sort of realized that Chairman Peters, having been the uh, one of the lead um, senators who moved the Megabyte Act uh, several Congresses ago, which established sort of software inventories for agencies, that had not been refreshed. And Congress hadn't put the put the screws to agencies to have them do real deep dive assessments into what's happening in their agency enterprises. And so, you know, for me, if if Congress is going to get serious about cutting spending, right, we're going into a debt ceiling fight, we're, we're trying to think about what uh, what cost savings look like, there's smart ways to cut costs, and there's dumb ways to cut costs. And I think one of the smart ways to do it is to have agencies really get their arms wrapped around all of this uh, software that's sold, used, deployed, built inside their networks, and use that to make better, smarter buying decisions in the next year, two, three, or four. So I uh, was really proud of, of Senator Peters' leadership on that bill. And, uh, you know, it just passed out of his GAC yesterday uh, on a unanimous vote. And I think that sets it up good for uh, passage sometime in this Congress. Um, th- this is something that Congress has been paying attention to for a while. I remember doing an interview with Congressman Joe Walsh from Illinois, a Republican, when he yeah. was still in the House. Boy, that had to be 2008. 2009 something like that and he was specifically 
looking at the Department of Homeland Security at that time about software licenses. And one of the big challenges, I remember asking, well, what happens about software that agencies buy as a service? Because that was at the the very beginning of Uh looking at the cloud and looking at SaaS and all of that. And there were still some pieces there that uh, had to be worked out. And so what... What's your sense, having been both on the Hill and in the executive branch, what's happened in the meantime and what happens? So you said Samos is kind of teed up. Let's say it passes. Then what happens and who has to do what, Matt? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And yeah, you mentioned the point about, about Congressman uh, Walsh. You know, w- when I was on the Hill working on this bill on behalf of Chairman Peters, I talked to a lot of Republicans about it. And frankly, we had more Republicans co-sponsor the bill in this Congress than we did Democrats. And and the point to them is, if you all want to stand up against big tech and you want to save taxpayer dollars, boy, do I have have a deal for you, right? And I could take them that bill and it was just clear as day, right? It doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum. Um, Now, what happens when and if Samosa passes, and I do think it will this Congress, I think there's a lot of momentum on the House side, and, and obviously the Senate's already moving their bill. You know, part of it is agents, absent Congress forcing agencies to do this work to really take this comprehensive look at all software that is bought, used, deployed, active, inactive, built in house inside their inside their enterprise. If Congress doesn't force agencies to do this really unsexy, really hard work, going line by line through all their contracts, they will never do it which means they're never going to have the actual information and data they need to make smarter buying decisions when those contracts they currently have come up for recompete, right? And, you know, I looked at this as a real smart step for Congress to make because Congress also makes some less than smart steps, like giving agencies perennially 12, 12 months worth of money to spend in seven months because they're on CRs for so right? Which just breeds poor buying decisions, right? It creates stasis. It creates, um, you know, it, it, it just, it, it bottles things up and it makes it harder for agencies to make smarter buying decisions. So, you know, the hope is that if agencies go in, they do this work, they work with independent vendors who don't have a conflict of interest, right? Do not have a financial incentive in selling the government more, but can go in and really look through their books, put in place a real sort of software modernization plan, look at enterprise licenses where it makes sense, give CIOs and chief acquisition officers um, stronger authorities over what's being bought and deployed anywhere inside their agency. It's going to lead to faster modernization, more movement to the cloud, better as a service buying, and it's going to open up a lot of competition for a lot of these smaller vendors who can't get into the federal market, no matter who's at what at the top of what agency who's pushing for more innovation they can't get in if agencies are wasting all their money on licenses for old software that's been embedded for 10 or 15 or 20 years somewhere inside an agency it system is there a risk that the market shifts though instead of just moving away from the software licenses is there a risk that the market moves from the software licenses to the audit services I, I mean, maybe, but not not really, because most of the audit services are already happening in-house, right? A lot of these big companies are selling the stuff, and then they're having their compliance teams come in and do the audits, and then using that to further entrench vendor lock-in, right? There are some companies that would sell this stuff, and then come into an agency and say, well, you, you know, you're going to have an $80 million licensing bill next year, or we'll cut you a deal. 
you do 25 million on the licensee, but then you move to a couple of our new cloud products and we'll start using you, we'll start rolling you over to our cloud stuff and away from on-prem. So not only does it create vendor lock-in, it also creates extortionary challenges for agencies who are handcuffed by a lot of this stuff they didn't even know that they had, right? I mean, it's, you know, imagine, you know, walking into a house and turning on the water and not being able to be in charge of how much how much water pressure you have on your shower, right? Like you're you're sort of at the mercy of of the folks that came before you. Um, so to that point, uh, you wrote in this piece in FCW, and we'll link it at fedgovtoday.com, the bill would require agencies to conduct comprehensive assessments of all software that, quote, has been purchased, leased, or licensed by or billed to an agency under any contract or other business arrangement. What do they do with that information once they have it? What You've kind of touched on it, but break out exactly what I can do as a deputy secretary or a chief information officer or a chief financial officer who's got to pay for this stuff once I have that data. Yeah, it's actually one of the the interesting pieces with the bill. So when I worked on it in the last Congress with with, uh, then-ranking member Portman's office, we originally were going to have IGs do this work on behalf of the agencies. We sort of, you know, originally we thought there had to be some independence for folks to come in and look at this stuff in a very practical, analytical way. And the more we had conversations with current CIOs, with former CIOs, with current vendors, with with, with former vendors, um, we realized that rather than having IGs do the work, because they don't have the specialty to do it, we actually needed all of the people at the C-suite of an agency who are responsible for you know, how IT modernization works to partner together, right? So it is the CIOs, it is the chief financial officers, it is the acquisition professionals, it's the lawyers to understand a lot of the terms and conditions in these agreements. So part of it is agencies have to do the work, they have to turn over every rock, they have to look in every corner, they have to go line by line through every contract to figure out what's happening. So the agency itself needs that information to set itself up so that it can be a better negotiator when current contracts come up for recompete or as they're looking to new modernization pushes within the agency. So that's one benefit of the bill. The second benefit is that once you have every agency doing that work, they can provide that information to Congress so that they can conduct better oversight of what's happening in agencies. But they're also going to give that information to OMB and to the General Services Administration so they can look across the entire U.S. government and say, where can we put in place new acquisition rules to, to move further faster? You know, what additional support capabilities can we provide to agencies so that we can look at enterprise buys? Like what are the most common uses of software products and services across agencies? And how do we lower cost and improve performance for all agencies who are using some of these large categories of software? So it's really going to have a multi-tiered benefit over the years if agencies do the real work, if Congress you know, keeps their, their foot on the gas, and if OMB and GSA come together to look comprehensively at what's happening across the, the federal government. I note that software licensing was on the Fatara scorecard from version 5 through version 11, December 21. Some of that time was when you were at OMB. Is it time to put that back on the Fatara scorecard? And should it, if so, should it be the same as what it was then if you think it should come back? So, you know, I'll reserve our next podcast for giving you my thoughts on what should or shouldn't happen with the Fatara scorecard. All right. But what, what I will say is, what I will say is, um, I had a lot of conversations with the folks at GAO that, that not only did the Fatara work, but, you know, specifically worked on Megabyte Act implementation, which is, which was that sort of, 
vertical of the scorecard for a time that that you mentioned. And my conversations with them, they were actually very happy that I and the other staff who were working on this bill were doing it because in their minds, the reason the the megabyte piece of the FATAR scorecard fell away is because all it had agencies to do was put in place a one-time inventory and then essentially to say that they had done the inventory, right? So in a way, it was a very backward-looking metric, right? It's like, did you do this one thing Congress asked you to do several years ago? Not, are you actively managing all of the software that is in use, bought, deployed, you know, built within your environments, right? And so when I had those conversations with GAO, they were very clear that that trying to get a bill like Samosa passed would actually move the work that they were trying to track under the scorecard, under that that category of the scorecard, much further faster. And so, you know, part of part of the bill is it, agencies are going to have to provide these assessments and their plans, not just to Congress, but also to GAO. So the hope would be that GAO in its auditing function, Congress in its oversight function, and OMB and, and GSA in their sort of cross-government sort of strategy and implementation function, they're all going to be looking at this and putting pressure on agencies to, to, you know, get better fidelity in the data, to use it more actively, and to constantly look at modernization and sort of, um, you know, improving the way that they buy new software going forward. So um, maybe maybe we'll create the Samosa scorecard, right? Maybe maybe that's a thing. I think that's your next gig is to, to go somewhere <laughs> where you can do that. Um, maybe. I, I really appreciate geeking out with this stuff on you. And regarding talking about the Fatar scorecard, I'll call you tomorrow. No, I'm just That's kidding. right. I'll, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll be here. I'll we'll be have here. you come back sometime soon, though. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks, Frank. It's always great to be here. And congrats on, on all the great work. You can find a link to Matt's piece and the text of the bill in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today. Act IAC's Health Innovation Summit's coming Thursday, June 8th in Reston. Speakers include the Chief Information Officer at HHS, Carl Mathias, Dr. Carolyn Clancy of the Department of Veterans Affairs, and many more leaders from across the government health IT community. You can read more about the event and find a link to register at fedgovtoday.com slash events. Federal employees would all become at-will employees if two members of Congress get their way. The Public Service Reform Act would eliminate most of the ways federal employees have to appeal personnel decisions, too. Jeff Neal is former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What are the differences and what are the similarities in this legislation to the Schedule F executive order that you wrote so, I'll call it eloquently, about uh, uh, when it came out during the Trump administration. Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this legislation is different from Schedule F in a couple of ways. Uh, you know, Schedule F, and, and I, I, I really did not like Schedule F at all, as you know. Oh, uh, I remember. It was appropriately named. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I, I, wrote a blog, I wrote a blog post called F the Civil Service. And the, what happened with Schedule F is it was limited to policy-making positions. And policy-making positions can be read in a lot of ways, but most people agreed it was probably fifty to 100,000 jobs you could call policy-making. And it would make them quasi-political appointees. And of course, most people agree that the one thing the federal government needs is a lot more political appointees running around, uh, not. 
And so Schedule F was was focused really on higher level jobs. Uh, this bill would make the entire 2.1 million civil service workforce at will employees. And some people look at that and they say, well, you know, at will is what most people are in their jobs. Uh, so why wouldn't it be okay for the federal government to be at will? And, and there, there are some reasons that it's not okay at all. One is if you just read the plain language of the bill, it says that federal employees would be at will and they can be fired, and I quote, for good cause, bad cause, or no cause at all. Why on earth would anybody in their right mind want to say that we want the federal government to fire people for bad cause? You're, I'm corrupt and you're not, so I'm going to fire you. You put out, you put out economic numbers that made my administration look bad. I'm going to fire you for that. You wouldn't discriminate against somebody who I told you to discriminate against. I'm going to fire you for that. What would happen is you would end up with a federal workforce that would basically be returning to the spoil system that we had before the Pendleton Act was passed in 1883. You would have a, a federal workforce that simply could not be trusted because you know that people would be in a position where they could be intimidated into saying things just to keep their jobs. And a lot of people forget that we rely on a lot of data from the government for very important things, like maybe running the largest, most important economy on the face of the earth. The inflation numbers that, that come out, you know, those don't get released to the White House a week in advance. Those numbers get released to the White House immediately before they get released to the public. And I know some of the, the, the people who work on these, these types of statistical uh, issues, they value their independence enormously because it has to be honest information. They have to report something that, that are, you know, something that people seem to have lost favor for, and that's something called facts. You know, I know the previous administration liked to talk about alternative facts at some point, but, you know, there are facts and there are lies. And these, these types of agencies have to be able to report facts. You know, there's a lot of information you can look at online now from a, a report about what happened with NOAA when they started getting pressure to tailor a hurricane forecast. If you remember the Sharpie Gate thing where the former president drew a, a different path for the hurricane with a Sharpie, you know, they were getting pressure to change a hurricane forecast. And now we're not talking politics. We're talking about people's lives. Being able to prepare for something that could kill you is something that people rely on their government to do. And so the federal workforce needs to be made up of people who are experts in what they do and whose word can be trusted. And although it may be popular in some quarters to badmouth federal employees, for the most part, people rely on what they do. They rely on the National Weather Service for weather forecasts, for hurricane forecasts. They rely on the Bureau of Economic Analysis. They rely on the Department of Labor. They rely on the Social Security Administration. And something that would make these folks at will and make them by law, able to be fired for bad cause or no cause at all is just a way to basically trash 
the federal government. And keep in mind, you know, if you if you look at this, let's say you're a conservative and you look at this and say, well, I think there are too many liberals in the federal government. It'd be good to get rid of some of them. Keep in mind, when there's a progressive president in office, he or she will be able to do the exact same thing. So you might be able to cram through a lot of conservative policies and do a lot of things to make things look the way you want them to look. And the next time there's a Democrat in the White House, he or she is going to do the same thing. Because if, if one side starts doing it, the other side starts doing it. And then pretty soon we have a government we, we simply cannot trust that's made up of a bunch of sycophants and political hacks. That's not good for the American people at all, and it's not really good for the world that we live in. So I, there's you focused, in, in my interpretation, on the bad cause piece of that. And I think I might actually, that is troubling, and I'm not discounting that. I think I might actually be more troubled by the no cause phrase because mm-hmm. one can probably see the bad cause coming. Like I can probably anticipate you and I work in the same workplace and you're my boss and I have an idea of where you're coming from. Let's say politically, ideologically, whatever. I probably have a sense of what's coming. No cause means that I could show up one day and you could have decided, well, I don't think any of these people are doing a good job that has nothing to do with anything ideological. I I just might not like them. And so you're all gone today. And so I think that strikes me as the the problem here, uh, maybe more so than the bad cause, is the potential chaos from these people are gone, and oh, by the way, we probably didn't figure out who's going to do the work in the meantime. Chaos is a great way to describe it, because the, the the government needs to have some stability. And people need to know the government will keep on working. And if a manager could simply get rid of somebody because he or she didn't like them, or because maybe because they just decided they wanted to hire somebody different. You know, I don't like you, Francis. I want to hire Betty Lou. I've heard that before, and by so the way. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> so I'm just going to fire, I'm going to fire you and I'm going to hire Betty Lou. And then I'm going to do that to 20 other people. And pretty soon we're not going to have a lot of people working there. And pretty soon we may not be able to carry out our mission because people don't want to go to work for an organization where you get fired, you know, just based on the whim of some person who might be in a bad mood on Sunday morning or Monday morning. So I think that's a, a, a real problem. And I think it could, could create the, the chaos that you mentioned. So, so I agree with you on that. I think it's a, a huge issue. It could create a massive problem and it could make government simply not work. And that, that's a real problem for everyone if that happens. All right. To what degree should I, if I were a federal employee, if I were a manager, especially an HR leader, to what degree should I be concerned today in the middle of May? And to what degree should I just continue to track it but not really get anxious about it right now? You should be concerned. Uh, the reason you should be concerned is that this kind of bill has come out in the past and it used to be considered just a total fringe idea. And now it's moved into more mainstream what is billed as conservative thought, uh, even though it's so radical, it doesn't seem very conservative to me. Um, 
So it's moving more into the mainstream. And you know, if you go to some of the conservative groups right now, like the Heritage Foundation, they've got entire plans for the next administration if it happens to be uh, a Republican administration. So they're not looking now at trying to you know, throw a fringe idea out there. They're looking to govern this way. And I think that's, that's the real problem is that this, some of these ideas are moving into the mainstream and they're becoming more acceptable. You know, once you say something enough times, people start thinking, Oh, this is a, you know, this is actually a reasonable idea because you just repeat it enough that it, it, people get used to it. And it's, it's dangerous when things like that happen. So I would encourage people to write to their Congress people, uh, write to their senators, uh, pay attention to what candidates are saying for the next elections. Uh, they should do that all the time anyway. Frankly, you know, we have one of the greatest privileges in the world to be able to vote in all these elections in this country. And uh, voters should be informed about what they're voting for. And you know, do you want to vote for somebody who wants to trash the federal government? You know, some people will say, hell yes, I want to vote for somebody who will trash the federal government because I think it needs to be trashed. I think most reasonable people would say, no, no, we want, we, we want improvements in the government. We do want people who don't perform to be either better or gone. And I think most people would agree that's a great idea. And so, you know, if you want to reform the federal civil service, there are some very good ideas, and, and National Academy of Public Administration has actually published some in recent weeks. There are some very good ideas on ways to do that. Um, turning the federal workforce from a professional workforce into a bunch of politic, you know, politicals is not the way to do it. And you know, there are people who say, well, you know, the, the president needs to have the ability to, to make policy and make things happen. He or she someday we will have a woman president, he or she can do that. That's the reason they have 4,000 political appointees. And you mentioned the chaos about jobs not being filled. Every administration, two years in, has political jobs they haven't even bothered to fill yet. Imagine what happens if they could start filling 2 million jobs. They can't fill 4,000. The Trump administration couldn't fill 4,000, the Obama administration couldn't, and the Biden administration hasn't. So they... They can't fill the 4,000 they have. Imagine what happens when they start screwing around with and breaking the 2.1 million. That's really dangerous. Jeff, it's sometimes ominous, but always great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the bill Jeff talked about in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. The FedGov Today podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow the show on any of those platforms so you don't miss the next episode of FedGov Today with Francis Rose coming Thursday from GeoInt in St. Louis. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.